This is HPR episode 1940 entitled Washlug Talk on LastPass and is part of the series Privacy and Security. It is hosted by Ahuka and is about 57 minutes long. The summary is an expanded discussion of the LastPass intrusion as delivered at our LUG. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. question in my mind is, will we move to IPv6 before we move to metric? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, let's get started. So, what I want to do is, I, I want to talk, uh, it's going to be about the last pass hack a little bit, which I have dug into and have deci- decided it really was not a terribly big deal. Um, and I say that as someone who has done a number of presentations on passwords and, and the best way to approach it, and I've always recommended LastPass. So when the hack happened, I, you know, a few people said, well, does that change your mind? And I said, no, actually it doesn't. But I want to start a little bit by talking about what are best practices. Um, because I think that helps. Uh, LastPass is very safe if you follow best practices. If you follow bad practices with almost any security tool, it'll bite you in the butt. So what are best practices? Um, and I think there's a lot of confusion. There was a, I don't know how many people saw, there was an article in Ars Technica uh, that was basically comparing average users versus security pros and you know, what are your top five things you're concerned with? And there was almost no overlap between those two groups. Um, it was very interesting. So. The average user, their number one priority for being safe on the internet was use antivirus software. Um, was that a large percentage of Windows users in there? That may have been a factor. That may have been a factor. Then um, their second priority, use strong passwords. That actually makes sense. Uh, Change passwords frequently. That actually makes no sense. Um, Only visit websites they know. That also makes no sense. Exactly. And don't share personal information. Uh, If you're on the internet, good luck with that one. Um, 
And here's what the pros said. Their number one security tip, install software updates. Uh, and a lot of average users resist installing updates. Um, now, you know, if I understand having worked in some large corporate environments, currently I'm at Ford, which, you know, is multinational global company. That's kind of the definition of a large environment. I can understand the IT department says, we, we're not gonna roll out these updates right away. We wanna do the due diligence to test them out. Uh, they do indeed. Um, at home, um, I install my updates religiously. Uh, my wife has a Windows computer. I have one Windows computer. I have them set to automatically install any updates that come through. Um, I mean, I could take the time to figure out which ones are really security related or not, but you know, there's only so many hours in the day, you gotta pick your battles. Um, now the second one, use unique passwords. Very important. Um, no. And that's actually the way I, I, I put it when I did our password presentation previously. Then use two-factor authentication, uh, something I'm a big fan of. Use strong passwords, and then number five on their list, use a password manager. Now, my priorities map pretty well to <laughs> what Ars Technica found the pros were recommending. Uh, and you can see the only point of overlap between the two groups was use strong passwords. So, you know, average users get at least one thing right. Um, and God love them for that. But, you know, there's odd things. Changing passwords frequently. Only visiting websites they know. I, that just, that's stupid. Now, for changing passwords frequently, uh, okay, they're average users they see the IT department at work insisting that, you know, every 60 or 90 days they must change their password. All right, I can see they might have internalized this is a good idea. It isn't. What a, for what attack vector is that really a defense? Yeah. So to me, that's an example of it. A lot of people will call that a best practice. Uh, what's the definition of best practice in the corporate world? If I do this, I won't get my ass suit off because that's what everyone else is doing. It doesn't have to make sense. It just has to be what everyone else does. Now, only visiting websites they know it's not what the web is about, you know? Uh, and as, as, set, as websites slowly drop off due to link rot and, and just entropy, you know, pretty soon I guess Google and ESPN would be the only websites they know anymore that are still around. Google's only good for taking Yeah. Well, you could get your Gmail. Okay. Yeah. So, 
So look at the pros again. Um, install software updates, use unique passwords, two-factor authentication, strong passwords, and a password manager. There's a, uh, there's, yeah, there's a, a typo. Yeah. So, install software updates, number one on the pros list. Um, I think this is a very important practice. I and mean, there's a reason it's number one on the pros list. All right, I read every day the SANS Institute newsletter. So I'm, I'm seeing what the latest security issues are. And it's almost, I can't tell you how many times it's like, uh, yeah, this site got hacked because of something for which a patch was released a year ago. And they hadn't installed it. You know, companies release security patches for a reason, because they've discovered a flaw. And, you know, nowadays when people announce that they've discovered a vulnerability, within hours there are people on the internet using it to try and take over computers. So, you've you got to do this. Uh, well, don't get me started on Microsoft and security. By the time they put a patch out, you really want it. I think one reason there's sort of this carryover of people not wanting to do that are years when software, when it came out, was so crappy that the answer was never install software until <laughs> other people had run it for a month or two. Well, yeah. I, you know, if you want to say never install a .o release, uh, I'm there. Yeah, yeah Prit Paul? I, mean, I think that, that some people just do it based yeah. on that sort of idea. Along those lines, though, I just point out, you know, users aren't resisting <coughs> doing this for no reason whatsoever. Mm -hmm. something that, you know, software knows what to do with all the software you think about. And, you know, there's people who are curmudgeons like me, and the patches or updates, so a lot of things don't have, you know, here's a Mm-hmm. And app developers or software developers love changing functionality, removing functionality, changing it up, and just, you know, messing with stuff other than security. Right. And so that's one of the reasons that users resist it because, you know, yeah. there is no update available that's just security. It's, I'm going to change your whole app on you. I'm going to change it to force the new paradigm that I like. If you're going to play promotion, my guess, my comment would be make sure that your OS is up to date, make sure that anything running as a service is up to date. Yeah. Any, that gets you typically what's exposed. And if you play more intelligent yeah. browsing and, and your email, you're probably not going to get hit there because you just don't randomly open yeah. random things. Mike? Yeah, so I mean, one thing I think with the average user again is that they have to know what the software update that's official is so that they aren't just responding to the, your computer has been hit by a virus, hit this button to fix it. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. there are the dangers if you don't know how to update your software, you can. And that's why my wife's computer is configured to just install the patch and reboot. Right. Uh, 
as is my Windows computer. Hello. Nope. That might be next door. Now, two-factor authentication. Um, I think this is excellent security. Uh, it does require a little more effort because with two-factor authentication, what you need to do, you have to, and in my case, my phone is the second factor, um, and I mentioned duo security. Uh, I learned about duo security from Mark Stanislav, who has spoken here a number of times, and if you get to hear Mark Stanislav speak, he's a great speaker, very knowledgeable, and at one time he was working for Duo Security and that's how I heard about them. And you can get a free uh, individual account with them. And uh, so that's a, a good way to get two-factor for a lot of sites. Now the, the sites that offer two-factor with Duo, they have to have some software. So for instance, on my WordPress websites, I've got a plug-in from Duo that you know, if I put in my uh, password on my website, uh, then send something to my phone, and I have to say, no, I'm approving this login. Um, so. One question about that. Yeah. What happens if um, your phone gets run over by a bus, and they tell you it's going to be a week before you get another phone? Feedback. <laughs> Does that mean you can't it's log in anything for a week? Went through having to get a phone with a crack and. Uh, doing the Google stuff, I have two-factor on the Google stuff. Yeah. And so if I use a new device, like a new phone, right, and go into Google, the, it comes back and requires... The website gives me several options, one of which is a push to my phone, another one is to send something to my email account. Um, yeah, if you're running with like Google Voice, you can use the Google Voice and it, you'll end up with an email with you, you can end up with an email with your text message. Mm -hmm. So it'll push you to the Google Voice, and then you can, if your phone's gone, you can go and get your email to see what the text is. Yeah, Google will even go, uh, you can put a landline phone or a voice phone, and they will read a code out to you. And you can print out a set of one-time use uh, special codes, and then you can have a set of them that you stick in your wallet. So there are a number of ways, but I think it is to Google that doesn't work yeah, for dual security. It's, well, it's still a two-factor. If you log in to Google from a new device and you don't have your phone with you, for instance, you can use a separate piece. And, and since my phone needed Google in order to get set up and but, but I think the idea that with two-factor authentication, you have to have some backup plan on the second factor. Okay, I should probably set up a backup, and I didn't do that here. So, um, but you can, ha you can have a backup phone or some okay. other ways. I wondered yeah. if, if there's an yeah. alternate method. Yeah. 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 Security, for me, my standard is I only give my Google Voice number to yeah. And therefore, I will get that message right. in multiple places. So, yeah. that's, and this is my Google Voice number that is in here. So.
So I think that that would probably cover it. Um, so. Oh, strong and unique passwords, which were two separate listings in the pros recommendations. Uh, they work together. So strong, I did a whole presentation on, you know, we got into the mathematics of it and everything else. Uh, long passwords with high entropy. So ideally, you know, we're talking about like 20 <coughs> character passwords that are random gibberish from the complete 96 character set of what the keyboard can give you. Uh, those are long and strong. They are, by definition, very difficult to remember. If it's easy to remember, it's not a strong password, is the way I look at it. Um, and obviously, if you have to memorize that, the average person is not going to do that. I mean, they won't do that for their bank account, let alone any of the other websites they might be interested in. So that's why a password manager was the last thing on the list. Security pros recommend a password manager because you can have strong and unique passwords. And oh, by the way, LastPass also has a number of two-factor things, <laughs> including duo security. So, But it was hacked. So what does that mean? I don't think it is a problem because I took a look at how does LastPass manage their process and what did the intruders actually get. Now, the thing that we have to understand, you know, security is a layered process. No security professional will ever say, I can guarantee you will never have an intrusion. They, they won't do it. You know, Bruce Schneier has a company based around the idea of how you respond to an intrusion is what matters. And I pay a lot of attention to Bruce. You won't like what they tell you you have to do. Starting with no network connection. Well, yeah, the, the only computer that's safe is one that is powered off, uh, has, has no network connection, is locked in a vault, and you'd still have to worry about who had the combination to the vault. <laughs> so, you know, that, the question is how you handle the things that happen. And, and LastPass handled it well, okay? So here's the, they, they got this out on the blog pretty quickly. So in our investigation, we found no evidence that encrypted user vault data was taken, nor that LastPass user accounts were accessed. Okay, so that was not the issue. The investigation has shown, however, that LastPass account email addresses, password reminders, server per user salts, and authentication hashes were compromised. There's no evidence that encrypted user vault data was taken, nor that LastPass user accounts were accessed, but these other things were, were compromised. Uh, yeah. Okay, so what is this telling me? First, they segregated their network. 
This is an excellent security practice. If someone gets into a piece of your network that shouldn't give them access to everything, okay? I contrast that with Sony, where once the Koreans got into Sony, they had access to everything in Sony. You know, you just get past the first line of defense and they were just totally compromised. So, good network segregation, you know, um, and in, in a good IT department, you're going to have barriers put up as to what people can access. And it, you know, we talk about things like role-based authentication and access rights and things like that. Okay. Now, what are the things that you have to store on something like LastPass? Now, the, the way LastPass works is that you access LastPass over the internet. So it's a remote site. Now, if you don't like that, when I did my uh, presentation on passwords, I said if, if, if you can't handle that, then you put something like KeyPass on your local machine and that's all you ever use. Uh, I like being able to access my passwords anywhere I am. There are times when that's very handy. So, given that that's what they're doing, how do they do it in a way that makes sense? Well, you know, they have to have the password hint. Okay. Uh, now, one of the things that, uh, you know, when people store any kind of password information, there's usually some sort of hint that's going to, if you forget your password, is going to jog your memory. So this is the password hint for the master password? Yeah. yeah. Uh, your email address. They have to have that, that's part of your login, that's really your account name as much as anything. Per user password salt, okay? Now, per user password salt, what that means is they, they take the other password information and then they add a random number to it and then hash that together. Uh, well, they have to know what that salt is <coughs> because otherwise the next time you log in, <laughs> they need to be able to add that same random number, hash it, and compare the hashes. Um, and then of course, the resulting hashed password values, they have that. And finally, all of that turns into a key that creates an encrypted database. So LastPass has all of those things there, and the key was the encrypted database was in a completely different network segment. So the people who got in never got anywhere near my password vault. That's a good thing. So they would have had to do a second successful attack. So you know, I don't know what the actual odds are. This is just an illustration of why this is a good security practice. If you have a 1% chance of being successful on any given intrusion, if you've got to do it a second time, that now takes you to a 0.01% probability of being successful. So I'm, I'm hoping that if you do things right, and LastPass does, that the actual probabilities are somewhat lower, but... 
I'm not a security professional. Right. No. It it has to be a bug that is common to everything and which the site owner either doesn't know about or is too stupid to deal with. I assume in this case that whatever it was they didn't know about until it had been exploited. Yeah. Most of these are social engineering attacks of one kind or another. That's I mean, that's what killed RSA was, you know, they were able to get some secretary to click a link. So, this is the stuff they got. They got the email addresses, the password hints, the salts, and the password values. So, why is this not so bad? Well, I, I, this is where, and, and I got this uh, from Bruce Schneier, um, he did a book called Beyond Fear, uh, published in 2003. And what that book was about was saying, well, you know, there was this thing that happened in 2001, you might have heard of, called 9-11. And he was sort of looking at it and saying, okay, everyone's freaking out and they're being really stupid because they're not thinking. Um, and so I call this the Schneier model. It, it, and I have an article all about that, but um, the countermeasure needs to work against the threat you have identified. And this is really important. Bruce really hammers that point. You know, what is it you're trying to protect yourself against? Um, I think it was Clausewitz who said, a general who defends everything defends nothing, you know? If it's like, a, I want to protect myself 100% against everything that can possibly ever happen, uh, you don't have that kind of money. And yeah. So what you have to do is you have to think logically, what am I trying to protect myself against? Okay, so if, say, the NSA was behind this, there's no evidence that the NSA was, by the way, and if they had specifically targeted you as a person of interest, you might be at risk. Now, I say might. Right. I remember doing a presentation here where I had several people in the room swear, at, oh, the NSA's got more money than God, they can do anything they want. And I said, no, they cannot violate the laws of physics and mathematics. They can't do that. And if you think about it, you take a look at, at all of the things we've learned from Ed Snowden's revelations, it's clear they can't just do anything. You know, they're storing up a lot of stuff because someday they may be able to decrypt it. They can't decrypt it now, but they're storing it. And they've got a lot of other interesting kind of ways of trying to sneak key loggers onto your computer and stuff like that. Exactly, right? So, and that's why I say, if the NSA is specifically going after you, your LastPass account is not your biggest problem. Okay? And as I say, you should be studying Edward Snowden like a rabbi studies scripture. 
the threat that I worry about is password that, that I use for a site could be grabbed by a criminal. That's what I want to protect myself against. Because these are people who might want to use my passwords to access my bank account, to take out credit cards in my name, do an identity theft. I mean, those are things for me to realistically be concerned about. Right. So, that's a manageable threat. You, you may have heard the story of the, the two campers who, you know, they're in a tent and they hear the bear rummaging around the campsite and one of them looks for sneakers and his friend says uh, it's no use you can't outrun a bear and he says I don't have to I only have to outrun you okay. so you know I, I'm not trying to stop the NSA I'm trying to stop criminals that are trying to grab passwords and those, those attacks are fairly common. So let's understand. The salted hash, this is your first level of defense. Right. I suppose your password could be the first level, but you know, passwords by themselves just don't do a lot these days. And you know, I, I imagine with biometrics we'll be beyond passwords one of these days. But for the moment. We're still stuck with them. So it adds a random number. That, that salt, that random number, must be stored on the same server as the hash. But it gives you an enormous amount of security against dictionary attacks, which is what you should be concerned about. Um, yeah. Because I don't think knowing the salt makes decrypting the password any easier. Well, let, let's think about it. What a dictionary attack is, uh, and people do this all the time, this is what everyone did with the Ashley Madison database recently. They did a dictionary attack. Uh, so every known password You've seen these lists. People will use the, as a password, password, or one, two, three, four, five, six, or Batman. For some reason, monkey ranks high on that list, and I don't know why. There's probably some interesting psychology behind that, but who am I to say? Uh, so they take all of the, you know, every word in the dictionary. and every common variation and you're going to substitute numbers for letters they know that they got all of that in the dictionary you're going to put three words together they know that you know, we're talking computers here you can do a lot Exactly. Sure. And, and, and that's, that's really the point. It's a numbers game. 
you go after Target, you lost 75 million accounts. Yeah. So what they do is they take all this stuff, they create hashes. Now the hashing algorithm is known. There's no, there's nothing secret about the hashing algorithm. Uh, and then you know they can create this dictionary. Then all they have to do is a lookup. You know, here's a hash I got from this database I downloaded. Here's a hash in the dictionary. Do they match? Computers can do that kind of stuff really fast. All right. When they match, now you know what the password is. Um, now, if there's a salt added to each password, even if the salt is known and tied to the user, it forces them to create a dictionary for every possible salt. So if you've got a million users, and you've got a random salt for each one of those million users, they now have to do a million dictionaries to try this attack. I don't need to outrun the bear, right? All I have to do is make sure this is not the most attractive option for crooks. Right? They're, they're looking for numbers. And so if they get the database and it's really hard to deal with, they'll move on to another database. If it's easy to deal with, they'll get the 50, 60, 70 percent I just want to be in the 30% they can't get. They're often happy, they said, with just finding the top 20 or 30 mm -hmm. passwords. If they stole a large enough data set to start with, like Target, right. if you end up with 8 or 9 million credit cards, you're happy. That will take you a right. long time to use. Yeah. So, storing the salt on the server is not a problem. That's how everyone does it. Um, and it, it really does add to security because of the amount of, of computational resource necessary to deal with that problem. Now, someone wants to say, hey, I heard about this quantum computing thing. And I would just point out, I have also seen some very interesting research on quantum cryptography. Most knives will cut both ways. Um, now the hashing algorithm added even more because they used a SHA-256. SHA stands for Secure Hashing Algorithm. They used the 256-bit. Uh, so let's just say this is good. All right, this is not a weak one. Now I saw there was a couple of years ago there was a story that got a lot of attention for a while about how, oh, we can crack all of these passwords, nothing is ever safe, blah, blah. And I, I read the article, MD5. MD5 isn't secure. Nobody uses it for security and hasn't for years. It's known to be weak. The only thing people use MD5 for now is verifying the accuracy of your downloads. It's a very good way of knowing if you've had a bit flip when you download a ISO file, for instance. But just a bit flip, not, yeah. not malicious. Yeah. Right. 
A single bit flip will throw off your MD5 hash, though, and that's the whole point. Uh, so, you have a client-side algorithm with LastPass. And what does the client-side uh, process look like? All right, you create a vault. A vault is, is just a little database. It's a file of your passwords and some other information. Um, uh, you can put notes in there if you wish, like some sites uh, want you to start putting in stuff like uh, the town you were born in, like this is going to provide security. Uh, do, you, do you remember Sarah Palin's email account getting hacked? And it was because you could look up all that stuff. <laughs> Those security questions are stupid. Well, Places insist on them. And I never Right, so in that case, you probably want to write down what you gave as an answer. <laughs> so you can store notes and stuff like that. Um, so you create this little database. It is secured with a master password. All right. This is the key, your master password. You do this right, you're fine. You screw it up, doesn't matter how many other things you did right. You know, I, I remember seeing a, I think it was an FBI agent who said, crooks have to get it right 100% of the time. We only have to get it right from time to time, and we'll catch them, you know. So, um, you've got to get this right. Uh, now, one of the things, you can do this. You're an idiot if you do, but what you can do is you can set up LastPass to automatically remember your master password so you don't have to type it in. That's not secure. <laughs> the whole point of the master password. So the master password needs to be long and strong. Now, once you create that, it's hashed together with your username, which is frequently your email address or something like that. Using SHA-256, which is a very good hashing algorithm at this point. Um, I say at this point because if you, if you take a look at what NIST says about this stuff, they, they estimate how long it'll be good for. And so current state-of-the-art hashing algorithms, they're saying probably last until about 2030. Right? Computers get faster, things change, researchers discover stuff. So, you know, you got to kind of keep up with this a little bit. Now, this hashing on your side is done multiple times. The default setting is 5,000, but you can change it. And the client-side process creates a key, which is hashed again and sent to the server. The server then adds the random salt, then hashes it another 100,000 times. And, you know, why do you do the 100,000 hashes and all of that? It just takes time, you know? 
the, the, if the bad guys have to do it 100,000 times for every single password in their dictionary, it'll just take them longer to do it. That's really what you're buying here. And then that creates the encryption key. And that's used to encrypt your database. LastPass does not have your key. All right. What it can do is it can recreate it when you enter your master password. So I remember setting up my wife with LastPass. And then, you know, a few weeks later, um, honey, uh, I don't think I remember my password. Well, I hope you can recreate your, uh, <laughs> your database because I'm not getting it back for you. <laughs> they warn you. They. <laughs> Right. Now, I once had a situation, and I, I don't remember now why I decided my master password wasn't good enough. I was going to change it. And I emailed myself a hint as to what it was. Two days later, I couldn't remember what it was I had done. So I, when I, what I could do, I went back to LastPass, and I said, we have a copy of your database from a week ago. Do you want to try that? Well, that was before I changed it, and I remembered that password. <laughs> I didn't lose anything. Yeah, I was about to say, they do tell you that you typically can go back one password change. They will typically have at least the database. Yeah, so I, was, I did get it back there. But, you know, they don't, they don't have it, and, and that's important. So, you know, if the FBI shows up with a subpoena or a warrant or whatever, they can say, sorry. Uh, indeed, indeed. So, they really don't have your key. Now, could it be cracked? Well, let's think about the process. In order to crack, say the government shows up with a subpoena, what can LastPass give them? Well, LastPass can tell them this is what we do server-side. We do this many hashes. This is the salt. This is the username. These are all components of the process, but it's combined with a master password that we do not know. And without that master password, you cannot recreate the key. And oh, by the way, if you want this binary blob, we can give it to you, but we can't decrypt it. Your master password is really important. <laughs> so, yeah, as I said, I've, I've already been down the road of what happens if you lose your password. Now, hashing is a well-defined algorithm. It's completely reversible if you have all of the parameters. Adding security basically means making those parameters as difficult as possible for an opponent to recover. And taking advantage of the fact that hashing does require some amount of resource and 
doing it for millions and millions of passwords is not trivial. Yes, Pritpal. Huh? I, I don't know what that means. It's reversible if you have all the parameters, but if you have all the parameters, that's not really reversing it because you've got it right there. Uh, that data that you have, you can get back. If you have that data. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, if you have everything that went into creating the encryption key. This, this is not public key, private key cryptography. Um, and I did a whole, actually that's the presentation I'm gonna do at Ohio Linux Fest. So. Um, but yeah, typically uh, with public key cryptography because it is very inefficient, you only use it to encrypt a symmetric key because symmetric keys are much more efficient to actually work with. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's the whole thing of Diffie-Hellman-Merkel key exchange. So, if an intruder gets in and, and... Now, in this case, they never even got to the database of uh, data, but let's say they get the database of hashes. They use the prepared dictionary of passwords that are already hashed, they run a comparison, they get hits, and they don't need to find every password, just enough to be profitable. Okay? That's how this works. So what are the success percentages? Uh, okay, I mentioned this study about cracking passwords uh, that used MD5, but uh, you know, if, if it's done badly, success rates of, of as much as 70% are not really uncommon. Um, and you just want to be in that other percent that they can't get. So how do you erect barriers? Well, number one is your master password. Um, now the whole idea of a password vault like LastPass is you don't need to memorize all of your long, strong, secure, high entropy passwords. You only need to memorize one. Well, pay attention. As we said, if you if you forget it, now again, understand your threat model. If you have a long, complicated password, should you write it down? Depends. What threat are you guarding against? Unencrypted copy of 
Yeah. So, again, this is understanding the threat model. If Remember, I defined this as I am protecting myself against an intruder who is grabbing an entire database and is going to try and get 50, 60, 70% of those passwords through cracking. If I've got mine in my wallet, is that intruder going to get it? Sure. But one of these is taken, I don't want to lose everything. Did you say one of the important things is not to keep the mm -hmm. password remembered? So, and I guess writing it means it's not mm -hmm. on or near any of my devices. So, you know, my point really is define your threat and think rigorously about the threat you're protecting against. Now, if I've got my password in my wallet and I get arrested and the FBI, you know, then I've got a whole other scenario to deal with. That's a different thing. But, but even, we, even then, you don't have to write down in your wallet master or uh, next password. Well, you don't. You know, it just has to be um, something that you can find if you and you know, one of them is you you know you write down part of it, and there's a piece that you know you can always remember that you tack on, or, or something. You know, there's various ways of doing it. Um, you know, if if I'm in Edward Snowden territory, it's a different ballgame. Okay, um, I, I'm not trying to be another Edward Snowden. Um, I, I'm amazed he did as well as he did. I mean, the dude just didn't screw up anywhere. <laughs> and, that, and that is just so freaking hard to pull that off. Okay. Now, changing defaults. This is one a lot of people miss. Remember I said that uh, LastPass does 5,000 rounds of hashing by default on your local machine? That's information that could be used by an intruder if they were trying to create a, a dictionary. They would say, well, let's, we'll just do the same process, right? Doesn't have to be 5,000. You can change it to any number you want. Um, change the default to something bigger. And don't make it a round number. Is that generally the idea that you don't want to make it a number, a number that somebody else is likely to also choose? Or is there some other just just make it something that no one is going to guess that you did. Okay? I mean, it, it, if, you, if you saw the... Um, they got into this, I think, to some degree in that movie uh, about um, Turing and the British code breakers. But, you know, it, it's very interesting. And it, there's a great um, series of uh, videos called Computer File. Um, on YouTube that they had a number of things about code breaking and they, they get into how that, it's like, you know, you just, there's some little piece of information, you know, the big weakness of the Enigma machine was it turns out you could never encrypt any letter as itself. And that was just enough of a additional piece of information that they could start building up ways of cracking it. So the thing is, 
you, you want to just get rid of information in the hands of, the, of your opponent as much as possible. Um, so if they don't know how many times it was hashed on your machine, you've just gained extra security. Now, LastPass does warn you not to get too big. Uh, try it out. I mean, if, if you have to go make a cup of coffee in the time it takes LastPass to open because you're doing so many hashes, maybe it's a bit extreme. You know, I've gone into the 20,000 range and, you know, I don't have the latest, most powerful computers necessarily, but, you know, it seems to work okay. I haven't had any problems yet. Yeah. Now, unique. Okay. Your LastPass password should be one you never use on any other site. Period. Full stop. Right. Um, remember that, you know, the common problem with reused passwords is that because people do stuff like that, crooks expect it. So very often, what'll happen is, you know, they'll get a, a target password. It's like a target, you know, who gives a damn about target? But, oh, well, I'll use the same password for my bank. And they say, well, let's, let's try this password at the bank and see if it works. <laughs> oh, we got in, <laughs> you know? Um, what that, yeah. Uh, yeah. One way that they get the top hundred passwords mm -hmm. to go break in and get seventy-five million and discover that there's a hundred passwords that cover eighty percent of your data. You know, the the most ironic one in those top passwords is trust no one, <laughs> which appears on the list. <laughs> Irony is wonderful. So. So what your password does, every time you open LastPass, you log in with your master password, your client server, then com client software combines that with your username, hashes it the number of times you specified to get your key that is then sent to the server where a known salt is added, and it's hashed 100,000 times, and finally your password vault is opened. Okay. So is this enough? Well. If you have a very strong master password, and you have changed the default settings for client-side hashing, and you know, LastPass is using a pretty good algorithm here. They're doing their part. That's not bad. But there's always that one more thing. And that, for me, is the, the two-factor authentication. So if I need to open my LastPass vault, um, I have to approve that, and it's something the Duo Security has a, uh, um, and basically what it is is you go to Duo and they give you a piece of code for LastPass, and you go to the LastPass site to your account and you paste in this code, and it basically says, uh, 
you know, if ever I try to log in, go through Duo Security, and Duo Security knows this is where they need to push uh, the notification that I need to then say, yes, I approve this. Uh, so I can't log into LastPass without approving it. So that's every time you log into LastPass, not just the first time on a machine? Um, if I have logged on to LastPass, it stays open until I reboot. Mm -hmm. So uh, as soon as I reboot, I've got to go through that process again. It, it's... Uh, you know, back in the old days, we used to call them TSRs, but I mean, it's just it's sitting there as a process in the browser that's running all the time, which is the way it's supposed to work. The idea is that LastPass, when I go to a website, is going to put in my login credentials for me. You know, that's that's why it's it's good because I can have secure, strong login credentials without having that burden of memorizing or, you know, frankly, it's a burden to type a lot of this stuff, you know. God help you on the phone when you start picking LastPass's 20-character random passwords. Exactly. So I would say, in conclusion, then, that four of the top five strategies used by security pros are addressed by LastPass. I can have unique passwords, two-factor authentication, strong passwords, and all managed by a password manager. And that's pretty good. Now, I pay for a premium, uh, premium account. That's all of $12 a year. Um, I could probably get by with, I, I think at, at one point they were saying that if you wanted to have it on your phone, you had to have a premium account. I think they have since removed that. But, you know, 12 bucks a year, I use this constantly. <laughs> I, I would like them to stay in business. That's the important thing. If you don't give them, yeah. if nobody would give them money, they would disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, when you come right down to it, I make good money. <laughs> you know, being a project manager for Ford has got me out of the soup kitchen lines. Pritpal? You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.